Welcome to episode number three of the Author's Brief Podcast. Each episode, we feature an author reading from their book. Today's author is Manu Herbstein. He is 82 years old and has dual Ghanaian and South African citizenship and lives in Accra, Ghana. He will read from his young adult historical novel entitled The Boy Who Spat in Sangrenti's Eye. His book won the 2016 Creative Book of the Year Award of the U.S.-based African Literature Association. It was also one of seven books which received a 2017 Children's Africana Book Award at the 25th anniversary celebration of Africa Access in Washington, D.C. last November. Hi, I'm Manu Herbstein. I'm going to read from Chapter 11 of The Boy Who Spat in Sagrenti's Eye. Sagrenti is the name by which a hero of the British Empire is still known in Ghana today. He was Major General Sir Garnet Woolsey, Knight Commander of the Most Distinguished Order of St. Michael and St. George, later Lord Woolsey. Sagrenti was born in 1833 and died in 1913. This story is set in the British invasion of the independent African state of Asante in present-day Ghana in 1874. Sagrenti led that invasion. Kofi Jan, the 15-year-old boy who spits in Sagrenti's eye, is the nephew of the chief of Elmina, a town on the Atlantic coast of Ghana. On Christmas Day, 1871, Kofi's godfather gives him a diary as a Christmas present and charges him with the task of keeping a personal record of the momentous events through which they are living. This novel is a transcription of Coffey's diary. It is illustrated by contemporary images from the Illustrated London News, drawn by the war correspondent Milton Pryor. Cape Coast, Sunday, 15th February, 1874. We returned to Cape Coast late yesterday. Grandpa Christian and Mama and Essie and the rest of the family were so happy to see me. They treated me as if I were a hero. I was so happy to see them all too, but my joy was tinged with sadness. The Kofijan who has returned to Cape Coast is not the same Kofijan who left here six weeks ago. I had a warm bath and scrubbed myself from head to toe. I had started growing a beard. Mama shaved my head and my chin too. Kofi, my son, she said, you've changed. When you left, you were a boy. Now you've become a man. Little she knows how true that is. This morning, Grandpa Christian insisted that we all go to church. Our own pastor, Reverend Andrew William Parker, prayed for those who had lost their lives in the campaign and gave thanks 
for the safe return of the survivors. Then the same military chaplain who had given the sermon about Jericho back in December returned to the subject. He told us that the destruction of Asante of the Asantehini's palace and of every building in Kumasi was proof that God was on the side of the British. I thought I was going to vomit. Cape Coast, Monday, 16th of February, 1874. The correspondence left yesterday in HMS Dromedary. When Mr. Pryor didn't appear for breakfast, I went to knock on his door. There was no answer. When I went inside, he seemed to be asleep, but I couldn't wake him. I called Mr. Stanley and Mr. Henty, and they called a doctor. The doctor said he was suffering from sunstroke and fever. He was in a coma and had to be carried down to the shore in a hammock. Mr. Stanley said to Mr. Henty, Poor Pryor, I'm afraid he will never reach England alive. Fortunately, he had paid me all he owed me, and all three of them had settled their rent arrears with Grandpa Christian. Down on the beach, I made a sketch of the surf boats loaded with the invalids being pushed into the sea. I'll post it to Mr. Pryor. I hope he'll be alive to receive it. Cape Coast, Thursday, 19th February, 1874. Sagrenti returned to Cape Coast today. He was given a hero's welcome, a salute by the ship's cannon and those in the castle, and cheers not only from his own troops, but also from the rich Fanti ladies who had put on their finest clothes for the occasion. Mama has been doing good business as the ladies prepared for his arrival. Later in the day there was a reception at Government House. One by one the ladies approached Sagrenti and bowed. Then each of them in turn went down on her knees and brushed his boots with her forehead. What a shame and disgrace! They are the wives of the merchants who have got rich from the war. What do they know of the pain and suffering it has caused, not only to the Asante, but to the Fanti bearers who were so badly treated, some of whom have been maimed for life, and others whose bodies lie buried in the bush, if indeed they were buried at all. Cape Coast, Monday, 23rd February 1874. Today was the first of two days advertised for the auction of the Asantehini's treasures. The sale was due to start at 10.30 a.m. in the Palava Hall of the castle. I went early and asked to see the officer in charge. My name is Kofi Jan, sir, I told him. I am the grandson of Mr. Christian of Dawson Hill. Mr. Meltel Pryor, the artist and special correspondent of the Illustrated London News, employed me as his assistant. I accompanied him to Kumasi. Before Mr. Pryor left, 
He asked me to attend the auction and make some sketches and send them to him. He was going to speak to you about it, but he was taken ill and was unconscious when he was taken to the ship last week. I brought my sketch pad. May I have your permission to make some sketches before the sale starts? Yes, certainly, he said. Go ahead, just don't touch anything. I thanked him and looked around the palaver hall. There was a long centre table, loaded with the most valuable items, many more than I had seen at the palace in Kumasi. There were solid gold masks, a gold ram's head, breastplates, ochami staffs, ceremonial swords, knives, ten pairs of royal sandals embellished with gold and silver, a gold bell, gold pipes, strings of agri-beads, gold nuggets, imitation shells in solid gold, and many pieces of jewellery, necklaces and bracelets, rings and much else. There were also many brass gold weights depicting trees, fruit, fishes and dragons, gates, swords, guns, insects, animals and human figures engaged in all sorts of activities. I decided that that was what I would sketch first. But before doing so, I had a look around the hall. The king's fine silver and gold plate was laid out on one side table, together with tankards, coffee pots and silver candlesticks. Set against one wall there was a large screen with a display of swords, leopard skin cartouche belts, canes with silver and gold heads, calabashes decorated with gold and silver, and embossed grass pans. On another screen there was a selection of Nana's collection of framed engravings imported from England. On the floor below sat a dozen finely carved stools, some of them with silver decorations. At the other end of the room, on other tables, hundreds of silk and cotton cloths were laid out on display. Yao had come with me. He helped me to set up the easel which Mr. Pryor had left for me. I set to work. Yao divided his attention between looking over my shoulder and studying the gold and brass items. His father, after all, is a skilled goldsmith, and Yao will probably follow in his footsteps. Sketching the items on the main table proved to be more complicated than I had expected, and I had to make a fresh start several times. When the big clock on the wall showed a quarter past ten, the same officer came to look at what I'd done. You'd better pack up now, he told me. We're going to open the doors soon. The British officers entered from one door and the Cape Coast public from another. The Fanti ladies were again dressed in their finest outfits, many of them with fancy hairdos executed by my own mother. The auctioneer started by explaining how the sale would work. It sounded complicated, but when he started it all became clear. He would hold up an item, he told us, and ask for a bid.
anyone was free to offer more. When it seemed that the top price for that item had been reached, he would call out, going, 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 gone, and hit the table with a wooden hammer. Then a clerk would collect the money from the highest bidder and hand over the item. Sometimes, though, the successful bidder didn't have any money. Then everyone would hoot and jeer at him, and the item would be offered to the next lowest bidder. Sometimes they had to start all over again. He auctioned the silk cloths first and then the cottons. Then he went to the main table. Some of the British officers were rich. They bid over a hundred pounds for some items. At noon they had a break for lunch and everyone had to leave the hall. What do you think, I asked Yao. He said he had never seen so many beautiful things. He couldn't wait to tell his father. Why didn't you invite him to come, I asked. As for my father, he said, he may be a goldsmith, but he's a poor man. I think he would be ashamed to come here in his old cloth. Yao, I told him, do you know that everything they are selling here is stolen goods? I saw them stealing it from the Asantehini's palace in Kumasi. Cape Coast, Tuesday the 24th of February 1874 Written on Saturday, 28th February 1874 Last night I dreamed of Nana Kofikarikari. He was sitting on his royal chair and playing with his cats. I asked permission and told him what I had seen at the auction today or yesterday. He cried. The Asantehini cried. In my dream I saw the tears rolling down his cheeks. But he said nothing. I felt bad when I woke up. I felt I had to do something to stop the sale. But it was already too late. Many of the most beautiful and most valuable items had already been sold. When I thought about it, I wanted to cry too. I would have liked to talk about this with someone older, someone I could trust, someone who would understand. My father? He was Elmina at, at his farm. Ababil? I wondered where he was, whether he had survived the war. Who else? I didn't know any Fanti who would have any sympathy for Nana Kofikarikari and the Asanti. Today was the second day of the auction. I persuaded Mama and Essie to join me. The ladies of the town were there again in force, with massive gold combs in their hair, gold butterflies above their foreheads, and five or six gold chains around their necks, gold earrings, bracelets of agribeads, and gold anklets. Some even tried to use gold dust to pay for the goods they bought, but the auctioneer would only accept proper English money. In the morning he sold beads, gold beads, and agri beads, and the brass weights the Asante used to weigh gold dust. Mama wanted to bid for some beads, but I begged her not to. Everything here is stolen goods, I told her. After lunch, 
So Grenti himself came and sat in a big chair near the auctioneer. He bought a battered old English coffee pot which had belonged, like everything else here, to the Asantehini. He bought Nana's state umbrella as a present for his queen. No one wanted to bid against him, so he got it cheap. He bought a fine stool and announced that it was a present for the Princess of Wales. He bought a gold orb which rattled when he shook it, and he bought one of the hats Nana wore when he sat in state. Sagrenti's staff officers bought the Asantehini's sword, the one I had seen in the royal bedchamber, and presented it to him as a gift. They were all so happy with their bargains. My dream of last night kept coming back to me. I was so sad, sad and angry. The auctioneer announced, Ladies and gentlemen, I am now going to auction what I believe to be the finest piece in this collection. As I describe it, my assistant will carry it around the hall for all to see. It is a bronze group, about 8 inches by 2 inches, of about 50 little figures, representing the King of Asante being carried in state through Kumasi. In front, armor-bearers and common people prostrate themselves. The state executioners and attendants follow. Next we see the king, borne aloft in his palanquin with a great umbrella over him. Chiefs follow under lesser umbrellas, then drummers, swordsmen, slaves and the general populace. Now who will open the bidding? Sir Garnet? Captain Brackenbury, bidding for Sagrenti, offered £10. The auctioneer continued with his silly patter, raising a laugh from the audience. The assistant returned with a beautiful work of art. With a nod of his head, the auctioneer told him to hand it to Sagrenti. I'd been getting more and more angry. When the auctioneer asked for the next bid, I could no longer control myself. You thief! I shouted at the top of my voice. A sudden silence descended on the hall. You thief! I shouted again. That is stolen goods. Everything that has been sold in this hall yesterday and today is stolen goods. Stolen from the Asante nation. Stolen from the palace of Nana Kofikarikari, the Asante Hini. I was there. I saw the stealing. You have no right to sell Nana's property. While I was screaming these words, I saw Sagrenti rise to his feet and speak to two soldiers, his bodyguard. They came across, pushed their way through the crowd and grabbed me roughly, one at each arm. They hurt me, but I didn't mind. I didn't resist. I'd completely lost control. It was as if the spirits of my ancestors were speaking through me, using my voice. The guards brought me to a halt in front of Sagrenti. I could see from his face that he was angry, very angry. Who are you? he asked. My name is Kofi, I told him, loudly so that all could hear. Kofi Jan, Kofi Azanti, Kofi Africa. I don't know what made me say that. 
the words just came out. I was the assistant of Mr. Pelton, Melton Pryor. I was with him in the Asantehini's palace. I saw him stuffing stolen goods into his pockets, and I saw your officers stuffing stolen goods into crates, the stolen goods you have sold here yesterday and today. Shut him up, Segrenti said. Gag him if necessary, and take him away. I'll decide to what what to do with him later. Wait, I shouted. I haven't finished. You are not only a thief, you are a murderer. You are the responsible for the death of countless Asanti, whose only fault was to defend their motherland. Murderer. Hold him tight, Sagrenti said. And then he swung his right arm at me, hitting me on the left cheek with his palm. The ring he was wearing cut me and drew my blood. Then he swung the same arm from the other side and hit my right cheek with the back of his hand. Again, the ring grew blood. If it hadn't been for the gods holding me, the first blow would have knocked me down, and if not, the second. Somewhere in the distance I could hear a woman screaming and recognize Mama's voice. Wait, I said again, and then I took aim and spat in Sagrenti's right eye, right on target. That surprised him. As he was taking a handkerchief from his pocket, I took aim and spat in the other eye. Then they dragged me away. I continued shouting, murderer, thief, until they gagged me. I'd like to thank Mr. Herbstein for sharing his book with us today. And thank you for listening to the Author's Read podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for the link to the book. If you'd like to support the Author's Read podcast, please like, subscribe, or share. Until next time.